Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, hello there. Ben, we are, hey. we're ready to do this again. How are you? You're back. Yeah, I'm back. Uh, miss doing it. Kind of like, uh, actually went to church today and I was sitting there, they were having a testimony meeting. I was like, oh, I kind of miss this. And then I was like, you know what? I miss home church too. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I missed doing the discussions as I was like reading through the stuff. I was like, oh, I want to talk about this. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be talking about that with Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you to Christopher for standing in. Last week, we recorded, and it was going to be out on Monday, and something happened with the recording on on the on both ends where we just couldn't salvage it, and so we didn't put an episode out last week, and it was so sad because Christopher had so many great things to say, and I was like, ah! So at some point, someone with a greater editing prowess than I will hopefully take a look at that track and hopefully save it. And if we do, we'll release it kind of, you know, however long in the future we have to do that. Uh, but we'll definitely have him back as a guest on. I talked to them today and we're like, hey, we're going to have you back on as a guest. Come on back and then we'll just have you on and we'll go from there. So he was very gracious. You know what I think? I think you guys were saying things that were, you know, could not be written, as the <laughs> scriptures say. They were so profound and so full of truth and so amazing that they had to be kept hidden from the world. Well, there was a moment when Christopher actually said, can, can we actually say this? And I was like, <laughs> we're saying it. it. It really was a great episode. So I really hope that we were able to do that. But for now, we are, man, we're in Samuel the Lamanite. So we are moving right along. I'm surprised at how fast this seems to go. But we have moved all the way through Alma. We've gotten through Alma. Helaman has a whole different flavor. Helaman is a completely different animal uh, mm -hmm. to me than anything that's in Alma. And I think I was telling you, Ben, that reading Helaman is so different from anything else. You know, we had talked about the war chapters and maybe possibly how the war chapters may be the first, if not maybe one of the very first things that Mormon had put together. And I had an idea that I would really like to get Fowler's stages of development, of faith development, and to use that to see if maybe we could like see atonement theory or faith development in Mormon as he was compiling the record through Helaman. Maybe Helaman was the second thing. I don't know. I, I, it's a long-term project, but I, I think that'd be really fun if you could use some kind of like faith stage development to interpret the Book of Mormon to see what was written first and to see how Mormon progressed and how the Book of Mormon came together and coalesced because, man, what a powerful book. What a powerful testament. And it it has such rich complexity, you know, whether it's literary and how it's written, the things that it focuses on. We're no longer really in the Nephite-Lamanite dichotomy anymore, right? We're, we're like in Gedeon 
Gadiatans now and the Nephites and Lamanites are coming together, but there are still old resentments like we're going to find out today. And so it's just, it, it's a rich and complicated text and man, Samuel the Lamanite, what a great story. Yeah, you're you're right. It is more than sort of the two-dimensional uh, context that we've been looking at up until now. We've we've really shifted uh, gears, added sort of another dimension of complexity, if not more than another. And um, you know, looking at it in terms of analyzing Mormon and the way that he's compiling it would definitely be one way, but that is difficult. Again, he is abridging the records of of other prophets, and so. A lot of it is his interpretation, but a lot of it is just how those prophets were perceiving their time as well. And so, you know, you've got multiple filters you're going through here. Uh, when we look at the Book of Mormon, we we want to say, you know, obviously there's different, there's multiple ways of going about it. But one way that I think can be very useful isn't just why did Mormon put this in here or why did Helaman do this, but what does the Lord want me to learn right now from this? What am I supposed to take away from this today? Um, and so anyway, obviously there's different ways that we can go about that. But as I'm looking through these these chapters of Samuel the Lamanite, um, there's a lot of really big questions that are raised about the context. Um, and uh, I don't know how much you thought about this, Shiloh, but you know one of the things that I begin asking right off the bat is why is Samuel the Lamanite even preaching to the Nephites at all? Like, cause in later chapters, it talks about how the people that actually do listen to Samuel end up repenting and confessing and going and talking to Nephi. Cause it says Nephi was preaching and prophesying among them. Well, why didn't Nephi get up on the wall and do this? You know, why is Samuel the Lamanite the one doing it? And I think there's, there's a lot that could be answered to that question. Um, you know, it's a whole discussion and it kind of digs up and and sort of elucidates more of the context and, and dimensionality that's going on here um, among the Nephites and Lamanites and Gadiantans and everything that's going on in the society right now. Yeah, I think the, the Gadiantans really do add a completely different dimension to what's going on. And I realized this time through on my reading of Helaman that I'm not as... I don't feel as familiar with the Gadiatan narrative as I have the first half of the Book of Mormon. I I think that when I come to the Book of Mormon, like I get to like the end of the war chapters, and I think a lot of the times I like start over. And I started realizing that Helaman isn't as familiar to me as everything in Alma or in Mosiah, and or, you know, even in the small plates you know, in the in the first half. But Helaman is this really rich context of bringing in the Gadiatans and. To be honest, I have a lot of hard time trying to figure out how the Gadiatan robbers really fit into modern context. Because they're, you know, they're oath-bound, they're murderous, and they really take on like the worst of the worst. And yet we are told that they were the what overthrew the Nephite civilization, that that was eventually the, those secret oaths and groups. But I, I have no context to that. I mean, like me in my own life, I get up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I'm with my family, and I don't know any secret oath-bound groups that are trying to have world dominion and power and try to overthrow all these things with murder and an intrigue. And that is so far outside of my context. And whenever I watch the news, 
you know, since I've been a kid, I've heard people say, oh, well, this is like purely indicative of like the Gadianton robbers. And, and maybe it is, I don't know. But if it has, it's been going on my whole lifetime. And I think it's thrown around so loosely that it almost like discredits the validity of ever being able to identify it for me. So I don't, I don't even know quite yet how to figure out these kinds of things and to, and to really apply those Gadiatin narratives to modern day examples and to our daily life without like delving into major conspiracy theories, you know, sure. you know, cause you know, I remember growing up and, and hearing, you know, if you go back to like Cleon Skousen's day and, and Ezra Taft Benson's day and way back then, you could talk about the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations and the evils of of world government. Yeah, the Bilderberg Group. And those things happen, and those, those are narratives that do happen. But in our daily life, in our context as just daily Latter-day Saints, we just don't have the context to that. And a lot of the news sources that we get that kind of try to like peel it back or think that we're peeling it back end up being so sensationalist and so out there that it's really hard to have any faith and appeal to that unless you kind of go in and like get in the mud and run, rub around in it yourself. And then at that point, you just kind of feel dirty. And I, I just don't know how to how to resolve that really well. Well, uh, it could be that we're just so engrossed in this narrative or not, not narrative, sorry, we're so engrossed in the context of of Gadiant and robbers, you know, here in in these uh, chapters, uh, just previous to this, it talked about how they had gained sole management of the government, right? And that the Nephites, just their entire society was actually beginning to be built around this. And it was just all intertwined. And, and I don't imagine that they themselves thought, you know, oh, you know, we're all part of this secret combination. Well, what makes it secret anymore if everybody's part of it, right? Um, not to say that I know exactly how that translates to our, uh, our present social context. Um, but, uh, I know many people have tried <laughs> and, uh, I've read quite a bit of different, uh, different ways of, of applica- or applying that to our society from a Latter-day Saint perspective. And I don't, I wouldn't say that there's no value to it. It's just, like you say, I think it is hard to to pin down um, and and actually find really solid parallels there. Um, in any case, you know this is a time in the Nephite and Lamanite civilizations where it's a very real, um, what we would say, clear and present danger, right to to their society. It is the enemy. Whereas before, you know, you had the Nephites and Lamanites who were mortal enemies now they're just sort of uh they don't appear to be mortal enemies they just appear to be sort of cultural rivals sort of and what the mortal enemy is now is the gadian robbers and multiple times throughout these chapters uh, i wrote in you know samuel the lamanite talks about their enemies you know the either the enemies of the nephites or the enemies of the lamanites and i'm thinking well wait you know we just spent chapters talking about how they're not really enemies anymore who are we talking about? Well, it's in this context appears to be the Gadian robbers. And so um, there is a difference with how the Lamanites in general appear to be dealing with the Gadian robbers, as as we talked about before, versus how the Nephites deal with the Gadian robbers um, or, quote unquote, their enemies. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that. We I you know, I grew up reading Benson and you know, Gary Allen, you know, he talked about in conference about reading Gary, Gary Allen's Nundere Call It a Conspiracy. You know, I grew up reading An Enemy of Dumbness and The Red Carpet. And a lot of Benson's principles, Ezra Ty Benson's principles as an apostle were just spot on. They were so great. But then he sometimes he got off out into the periphery of trying to make political predictions. Uh, you know, geopolitical predictions, Russia, China, different world leaders. And his his political predictions never really came to fulfillment. And so it was it's just one of those things that kind of gets difficult. And, you know, all of these other uh, conspiracies we can get around with Getty Atten's in our in our in our communities. I don't know. I don't know. It's again, I don't know the context. <laughs> well, we are talking about a different culture here. And so there's a lot of things that we just won't be able to relate to in some ways. And um, I think Mormon knew that right and so there's a lot of things he talks about or he says that they talk about and he just completely leaves them out you know before when nephi was up on his tower and praying and and saying all these things and talking to them about how wicked they were and that they were part of the gadians it says in there that nephi said a lot of things unto them you know and and i'm sure he went into all of the cultural context that was going on with all these gadian robbers and had a whole discussion about it but mormon left that out thinking it probably wasn't um, as important or relevant to our context today um, again how we apply this is is not really clear but um, you know getting into samuel the lamanite starting here with uh, chapter 13 i think verse 1 uh, gives some interesting context to the rest of this because he talks about how right off the bat it says here um, it came to pass in the 80 and 6th year the Nephites did still remain in wickedness yea in great wickedness while the Lamanites did observe strictly to keep the commandments of God according to the law of Moses so um, it appears you know still at this time the people are very this is an Old Testament time period right this is before Christ, um, but the Nephites, the Nephites have always been um, ostensibly, you know, sort of this bridge between Old Testament and New Testament, right? This is how Nephi talks about how, yes, we obey the law, but it's dead to us because of our faith in Christ and, you know, we're alive in Christ. So there was supposedly this, this idea that, yes, we keep the law of Moses, but we we really know that it's not the whole purpose and intent, you know, that we look to Christ. Abinadi talks about this as well. But uh, here we see that the people are still very much focused on the law of Moses, even the very converted Lamanites are. And, and so this is what is given sort of as the sign of their righteousness, the fact that they are observing strictly to keep the commandments of God according to the law of Moses. So I just think that's an interesting context to the rest of this because the Nephites aren't even doing that. And here comes Samuel the Lamanite to preach to them. And he first goes in to, to teach to them and is going to declare glad tidings, right? But they won't receive him and they won't listen to him. They kick him out of the city and they won't even let him back in. And he's going to go back to his own lands. But then he's told he needs to go back and preach to them again. Wow, you know, that's Ammonihah all over again. That's like Abinadi. 
Yeah, and Abinadi as well, right? We have this repeated pattern of, of a prophet going in, getting kicking, kicked out, and then coming back because he says, okay, you didn't receive what I was going to give you. And so now I have a message for you that's a little different from what I was going to do, but I'm still commanded to give this message to you. It's important that you hear it. And there are some righteous among you who are going to listen. And so for their sake, I've got to give this message. Yeah, we see that here as well. I love that parallel between Elma and Abinadi because we also see, as I was able to find reading through this, because, you know, when we talked about Ammonihah, the angel who tells Alma to go back to Ammonihah warns that it's because of liberty and freedom, right? It's they destroy the liberty which the, the people are there destroying. And what's fascinating is it's the exact same thing that Samuel the Lamanite end up talking about. In chapter 14, at the end of 14, he comes out and he's like, hey, and now remember, remember, my brethren, that whoso perisheth, perisheth unto himself, and whoso doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourself. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. He hath given unto you that you might know good from evil, and that you might have given unto you that you might choose life or death, and you can do good and be restored unto that which is good, or have that which is good restored unto you, or you can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. So here again, we have this message of freedom again. And so, it, yeah, just the parallels between Samuel the Lamanite and Alma are quite uncanny. But, you know, Samuel the Lamanite doesn't end up dying. He runs away faster than Alma did. <laughs> Alma did. So, you know, he doesn't run away and he doesn't receive Abinadi and Alma's uh, fate in watching the martyrs. But we also see, I think it's interesting that, you know, you brought it up. The Nephites already have Nephi. Nephi's already been there preaching. Why is Samuel here? Why is is he coming in from out of town to come in to get up on the wall to say this at all? You know, the Lord commanded him. He's doing what he feels the Lord wants. But like, what's his purpose and what's his place in this? Why is he the catalyst? And I think in in a little bit, it's answered in 13 verse 5 when he says, Behold, I, Samuel, a Lamanite, do speak words unto the Lord which he doth put into my heart. And behold, he hath put into my heart to say unto this people that the sword of justice hangeth over this people, and four hundred years pass not away, save the sword of justice falleth on this people. I think it's rather appropriate, and I think there's probably a more subtle narrative going on here than I may have previously recognized that it's the fact that Samuel's a Lamanite. And we, we get a hint of that later on. And, and this is really interesting verbiage. You know, in the Old Testament, there's this phrase where it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And we see that same kind of verbiage coming out in chapter 15 in verse 3, when he says, Yea, woe unto this people who are called the people of Nephi, except they shall repent when they shall see all these signs and wonders which shall be showed unto them. For behold, they have been a chosen people of the Lord. Yea, the people of Nephi hath he loved, and he hath chastened them. Yea, in the days of their iniquity hath he chastened them, because he loveth them. But behold, my my brethren, the Lamanites, hath he hated, because their deeds have been evil continually, and this because of the iniquity and the tradition of their fathers." And so I think this is interesting language, you know, for a prophet, someone who's inspired of God to come out and to say that God loves one people and he hates the other. Obviously, there's a different cultural connotation to these these words than we might say, though, because um, this this isn't consistent with 
the God that we know that is preached through the rest of the scriptures. So these aren't the same types of love and hate that we would ascribe the, the meaning to. Right. Right. And I think that's important too. There's a lot that's ascribed to God and Helaman. In fact, and we addressed mm-hmm. a little bit in the previous podcast, you know, that I had with Christopher, you know, in, in chapter 12, chapter 12, and this kind of goes back to last week's come follow me. But chapter 12 is really interesting, especially in verse three, because there's this, it's just a really bizarre verse for me because I look at my father in heaven as my, as my parent as a loving, kind, patient parent. And I've learned more about my heavenly father being a father myself and how I relate to my children and in how I'm there with him. But here in verse three, it's really fascinating. It says, and thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. And I'm like, well, that's a really bizarre way to get your kids to remember you, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like as a parent, do I do I afflict my children? Do I go out there and actively afflict my children to be like, hey, listen, you need to know how good I am for you and I'm going to afflict you right now. You know, do I sacrifice and kill one child just so that the remaining children are like, we see that you love us, father, more than the other one that you killed. You know, is that it? Right. Do I terrorize my children? And not just by terrorize, like, you know, get to your room or I'm going to spank you kind of a thing. I mean, that's that's kind of threat by, you know, ruling by fear of threat, right? But no, like, terror, like, cowering in fear, like, f- afraid that you're going to die kind of a thing. And with famine. And not just go to your room, you don't get dinner. But, like, I'm going to starve you until you're ready to die and you're scared that you're not going to die. So then I will give you your next meal so that you will know that it came from my loving goodness. And then here with pestilence. Now, I'm a pest control guy. I own a pest control business. <laughs> this lands for me. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so when I see pestilence coming out and I have customers who are, and, and my job is to go out and to help customers be comfortable and to be secure and to have peace in their homes, free from infestations that come in. And Ben, I've seen so many wild and crazy things of the world and, and basically the environment trying to take back, right? The, you know, civilization. And I would never take my kids and rub their faces in a big <laughs> pile of German cockroaches. I just, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see a nest of black widows and be like, guess what? I'm going to throw you into that so I can rescue you and spray pesticide all over you so you can know who loves you. And I, that's just not, that's just not feasible in my mind. And so going back through a lot of this, I've recognized that we, you know, we've talked about this before. We project onto God all the time, our own feelings and way of looking at things so that when the world happens, we're like, oh, God did that. And chapter 11, I don't think really helps in seeing that, you know, this Nephi, this play out with Nephi and the, and the famine about how there's active war participants. And Nephi's like, well, let's not have active war participants die. Let's have a famine that actually kills men, women, and children indiscriminately and usually kills the children first because they're the most susceptible to this kind of thing. So that's better. I think something else is going on here in the text that we don't often really analyze. I think, I think we like, oh, look, the famine is possibly better in chapter 11. Uh, maybe with total lives, but it, it's indiscriminately killing women and children now, right? 
And now we're seeing here that in these kinds of verses where God loves some and hates others, there's just a lot here in Helaman. That's why Helaman stands out to me so much is that there's a lot of this going on and a lot of this type of language of God being actively vengeful and persecuting and coming with death and with terror and famine to be able to punish his people. And we do see a lot of that with Samuel's message here. Well, I, you know, there's obviously, as we've said, multiple ways of analyzing this, but particularly in chapter 12, I see this um, not so much as like, a a revelation as it is like a prophetic lamentation or like a rhetorical type of uh, musing you know you have I, I don't know how many times I've thought you know like uh, my kids I'm, I'm thinking you know they do something and there's this consequence to it and they they go through all this suffering and pain and I just think like I'm just ripping my hair out like why do you have to keep banging your head against that wall, you know? And that happens with myself as well. And and I, in this context, I almost see like a prophet seeing this, you know, he's observing all of the things that are going on. And it's more of like a rhetorical lamentation about reality and um, you know, as he says, sort of the, what what does he call it? Um, the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men, right? And um, almost like he's just, this is almost like a prayer, right? He's just kind of pouring out, emptying himself of, of all of these frustrations that he feels uh, to the Lord. And, and that's kind of how I see it. Because, you know, when you pray, um, part of getting to the truth sometimes when you pray is is moving through a bunch of lies, <laughs> and um, and so I I kind of see that in Nephi here. Um, it, there's there's verses in Alma where it talks about how Alma you know struggles much in the spirit, but it doesn't tell us really much of what he says. Like uh, I think chapter thirty one, there's a little bit of his prayer. But it's kind of the end of his prayer, right? It's the part where he talks about how we love them so much and and they're our brethren and please grant to us the spirit that we might be able to convert them. But we don't know all of the baloney that Alma went through before his heart could arrive at that point, right? How much frustrations he poured out and expressed to the Lord. And so um, I don't know if it's helpful to anybody else, but as I was reading through that, I kind of just felt like this is Nephi's poetic lamentation, his his rhetorical frustration as to what is just going on after all that he all the preaching and and miracles that he's seen. How can this be? How can this be among this people? So um, uh, on on Samuel the Lamanite, I, I like I said, I I have all these little questions kind of jotted in the margins, like like verse five that you read is. It's so odd to me, um, and I don't know if you have any insight on this. It's like, why he says at the end, he says, and 400 years pass not away, save the sword of justice fall upon this people. And he says, yea, heavy destruction awaiteth this people, and it surely cometh unto this people, and nothing can save this people, save it be repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, who surely shall come into the world, and shall suffer many things, and shall be slain for his people. 
Oh, I just love that second part there where it just kind of teaches the gospel in like two lines. But um, why? I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering, why does Samuel the Lamanite even talking, why is he preaching to this people about how they're going to be destroyed in 400 years? None of them are going to be alive in 400 years. They're all going to be dead. And guess what? Before that time comes, they are actually going to the ones that are left and around, they are all going to repent and believe in Christ and become an exceedingly righteous people for several hundred years. And so what is what is the purpose of this prophecy and pronouncement of Samuel the Lamanite that the people will be destroyed in four hundred years? I don't I don't think I understand why he says this. You know, I had the exact same question and I don't, I don't have a good answer for it either. You know, because it follows through for the next like three or four verses. He says, and thus saith the Lord, because of the hardness of the hearts of the people of Nephi, except they repent, I will take away my word from them and I will withdraw my spirit from them and I will suffer them no longer. And I will turn the hearts of their brethren against them and 400 years shall not pass away before I will cause that they will be smitten. Yea, I will visit them with the sword and with famine, with pestilence. There's that famine and pestilence again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I will visit them in my fierce anger, and there shall be those of the fourth generation to behold your utter destruction. And this shall surely come, except ye repent, saith the Lord, and those of the fourth generation shall visit your destruction. You know, I, how does this, if you're talking to a wicked people, and so wicked that, and I have to think that they are so wicked in temporal matters, because we have this really long curse that goes on to talk about lost treasure. As if that, and and I had the same question, like, yes. why is he talking about these the curse of the lost treasure? That when you lay something down, you won't be able to find it again. You can't bury your treasure or else you're, you're you know, you're going to lose it. And that's the curse that's going to happen. I'm like, so what is that attacking on the Nephite narrative? What, what are we supposed to imply because of that? You know, I can say, well, the Nephites are greedy. They're money hungry. Maybe they're, you know, there's burying things because, but what other, what other aspect of the Nephite culture are we not getting here? What are because this doesn't seem to really add up for me. And if you're going to take that kind of people who are so greedy and selfish in the here and now to be able to store up these treasures and to want to be able to have this here and now, why are they going to even care that they're going to be destroyed in 400 years, let alone believe it? Like, like what is that supposed to be? I, yeah, I just don't and, know. And I don't. Um, so, so here's the only thought that I have on this, and this kind of goes back to. Alma's prophecy that he tells his son Helaman, but then he says, don't, don't tell anybody, right? It's kind of like this private prophecy, so to speak. And it's that he prophesies that the people of the Nephites will be destroyed, this very people, he says. And, and my question at the time is, what does he mean, this very people? Because the people actually become intermingled with the Lamanites. There's a, there's a good solid time after Christ comes. There's no manner of ites at all. So it's not this very people because the Nephites after Christ are really a completely different people. They've, they're a reconstituted Nephite nation. They're not a, uh, they're not the descendant, so to speak, um, or the successor of the previous Nephite nation. They've simply just reconstituted themselves and called themselves Nephites, and the same with the Lamanites. And so what I see, again, in this is this whole narrative of the 
the superiority complex that the Nephite tradition or the Nephite society or civilization has as such um, over the Lamanites. And the Lamanites apparently don't have this this pride uh, in their civilization that makes them feel like their identity as Lamanites makes them better people. Now, the Lamanites have other problems that Samuel the Lamanite gets to. And he says, we, you know, uh, we have wicked traditions that sometimes persist among our people, and those are a serious problem for us, and they have they have caused lots of sadness. But you Nephites, and this seems to be between the, ne- the lines, you know, and this is almost a little uh, ironic um, in terms of the context we're talking here, but you Nephites, you know, you're the ones that have this superiority complex. Um, you think your civilization is so much greater than ours. You've always looked down on us. That's why he says, um, you know, you, you brought it up a little bit, but later in, in chapter 14, um, he says, and now because I am a Lamanite and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, this is verse 10, and because it was hard against you, you are angry with me and do seek to destroy me and have cast me out from among you. Um, you know, again, sort of, sort of bringing up this idea that the Nephites, even though they're not at war with the Lamanites anymore in terms of mortal enemies, they still are these cultural rivals and they look down on the Lamanites, if not just culturally, um, maybe there's some sort of uh, racial component to it. I don't know. But in any case, um, going back to this idea that the Nephites as a people will be destroyed for in 400 years. Again, why does that matter? Well, in this context, I think it might matter because the Nephites view themselves as this great, powerful, enduring civilization. And for a Lamanite, this savage, right, to come among them and to tell them that their civilization is wicked to the core and the, the the very things they think are so great about it are the very things that are going to bring it to destruction. Um, you know, that really punches you in the gut, right? Wow, um, yeah. And so that is the only thing I can think of here is, is the why Samuel would even bring it up. Um, and it, But it does also potentially answer the question of why Samuel? Why not Nephi? Well, Nephi is part of the culture. He's within it. And he can give a certain criticism of it that um, is only going to go so far. Sometimes it takes this outside critic, Samuel, to really, you know, drive that home and 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 tell them what's really going on in their society. I, uh, I was trying to talk this through with my dad a little bit because I uh, was thinking about the Samuel Lamanite over this question of, Again, why? Why is he even sent? And um, yeah, I just wonder, you know, there's no indication of this, but um, the speculation, what was the relationship, if any, between Samuel and Nephi? Did they know each other? Um, I would tend to think yes. I mean, Nephi is the very one who went and preached with his brother among all the Lamanites and converted them. And then here we have Samuel the Lamanite who is... um, um, implicitly one of the great prophets among the Lamanites, he had to have known Nephi in some sort of context, um, known who he was, right? And so I wonder, 
did they know each other? Is is Samuel even coming among the Nephites based on an invitation from Nephi? Nephi's preaching among the people and he's seeing, hey, there's a certain subset of these people that just will not listen to me. And I know the Samuel guy and his preaching style might get to them. <laughs> and so, hey, how about you come over and, and uh, you know, teach the people or... Um, or, you know, maybe it wasn't Nephi directing that. The Lord did it. But I just, I think that would uh, would be a fun movie to make, right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I, I love that. I, I've never even remotely considered that. But that's really putting a lot of pieces together that I didn't even know were not in the same category. But <laughs> or like right here in 15, you know, what I already read about, you know, the Nephi, God loving the Nephites and hating the Lamanites, you know, that could not be... A, a statement of like a descriptive statement of God's will that could be part of the Nephite narrative. Like he's just identifying yeah. possibly a Nephite narrative that they hold right. as people. And so, yeah, because yeah, it doesn't make any sense. As you said, when they come together after Christ comes and they lose all of the ites. So there's no more ites. There's no more Lamanites, Josephites, Ishmaelites, you know, Nephites, nobody, everybody's just the people of God. And it's their, it's it's not just the nationality, but there is just a separate identity that they begin to form into what they coalesce back into these old identities of who and this. And I've always wondered, you know, just the power of being able to write the narrative. You know, how different would the Book of Mormon be if we actually happen to have the Lamanite record? You know, studying and going through a master's degree in history, we always wonder, like, what is the narrative of the oppressed? The people who were never able to record their history, the slaves, the women, what, what's their history, right? Communities that are disenfranchised often don't have a recorded history. And so the Lamanites, though, they're always the ones they that have, have a much larger- luxury of recording it. <laughs> yeah, they don't have either the luxury of recording it or the ability or the know-how, or they don't even sense the power in being able to frame and to keep your own narrative, Right. And so if this is the case, then Samuel the Lamanite would not just be a really useful tool of utility, but a very powerful and almost necessary one for this particular type of message, not just to the Nephites as a genetic community, as people who are bloodline, you know, from either Mulek or Nephi or, you know, anybody who followed Nephite originally, but as a, as a way of talking about community narratives in how we perceive ourselves with God. Because as you said, the Nephites were always, he talks about it right here about how the Nephites are always the one that were in the cherished relationship with God. Just like, you know, that's our American narrative now. You know, I have this book about, um, it's uh, one of my favorite books, but it's a book about American myth or the myths that Americans live by, I think is the actual name of the book. It's one of my favorite books because it talks about how myth and narrative solidify identity and how national myths come together and, and certain certain ideas and identities we have within ourselves as Americans and how those were formed and propagated 200 years ago. We don't often realize that the identities that we have today are sometimes the successful propaganda machine and, and campaigns 200 years ago. That we are literally the recipients of narratives that some guy, and this actually, this is actually 
a real aspect of American history because we know that as soon as the Constitution, for instance, was signed, that the interior land, everything from the Blue Ridge Mountains and in, in, in on the interior, did not identify as Americans. They, they were starting to form their own communities and identities the further inland they went. And several of the founding fathers, I think it was even James Madison, who, uh, and maybe it was Alexander Hamilton, I want to say, but uh, they had actually promoted that they wanted to start to send in propaganda leaflets and books and educational materials so that they could start to nationalize the identity of the interior west of the Blue Ridge Mountains so that they could actually have a westward migration without having to try to fight another war. So that you include the people into the narrative as opposed to fighting them and conquering them. And so that whole westward expansion of Manifest Destiny was a very popular piece of propaganda because it utilized God and the country and virtues, and it kind of coalesced into one story and narrative. And so no matter who you were, whether or not you were a religious nut, a secular nut, a civil nut, whether or not you're just going out there by yourselves and blazing a trail through rugged individualism, it didn't matter. It was a message that everybody, it was propagandized to everybody so they could all move out. And it lasted for hundreds of years. It's still going on. It still frames the identity of people today. And so, man, if that's what's going on here, if Samuel the Lamanite is talking about these layers of identity, this doesn't have anything to do with genetics. This isn't anything to do with your whole Nephite as your natural blood lineage of Nephite, because as you said, Ben, how could it? They're going to intermingle as soon as Christ comes, and we're, and we're told that the designations that they break apart are all kind of just self-made cultural designations. They're not really blood lineage. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's actually talking about something completely different. You know, um, and, and to sort of drive this home a little more, Nephi himself, when he has his vision and he sees the destruction of, quote, his people, right? He says, my people. And so these are people that I, that identify him and with him. And, um, that, you know, it, it still keeps raising this question. What did it mean to be a Nephite? Right? What, what distinguished a person as a Nephite? And it wasn't just descendancy, you know, genetics. There's something else going on here because even the Mulekites, you know, they were, get wrapped into this Nephite identity. And so I think that's something to to explore here and I think could really um, sort of illuminate this uh, idea that we have, uh, I believe it's uh, Benson that talks about it, about how the, the Book of Mormon was written for our day and it was written for us. So this uh, narrative throughout the Book of Mormon of the Nephite civilization and and what it meant to be a Nephite and the good things and the bad things about that, you know, the pros and cons about Nephiteism, <laughs> as it were. Um, what what does this mean? And 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 I think Samuel the Lamanite can bring out some very interesting things about that because he is this explicit Lamanite prophet that we have authoritative scripture from, right? And and he speaks to this very point. And so it's a it's a fascinating little tiny almost microscopic <laughs> window into the Nephite Lamanite dynamic. 
um, again, I ask, you know, what did it mean to really be a Nephite? I, I wonder if this, this whole cultural, um, nationalism of the Nephite is, is sort of what, uh, as America, as Americans, we might wrap up in the phrase, God bless America, right? Well, what does that mean? Because it can mean, is, is it a command? Are we telling God you have to bless America? Are we saying God has blessed America? Are we saying that America is blessed by God and is just obvious? And so anyway, the, you know, there's there's all of these sort of nationalist ideas wrapped up in that phrase that we could have a whole nother discussion about. Um, but, you know, in terms of contextualizing it in our day, we couldn't do that very well with the Gadiantans, but I feel like <laughs> I can find a little thing here, right? Yeah, I love what you're saying there about also, what what does it take to be a Nephite? Because that reminds me going back to the Stripling Warriors in Alma 53, because yeah. they came from a society where their parents were Lamanite. And then they're like, nope, we're not going to be Lamanites anymore. So what name do we call ourselves? Well, they didn't take upon themselves the name of Christians, but they became the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And we talked to you know how there's no consensus on what that actually means. But the general, really broad general concept is they wanted a term that was basically that they accept and reject no narrative. <laughs> it was it was just they are what they are in this milieu of whatever civilization they're in. And then their sons in Alma 53, and I just looked it up, and yeah, it says, but behold, it came to fight. pass that they had many sons who had not entered into a covenant that they would take upon the weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Therefore, they did assemble themselves together at this time, as many as were able to take up arms, and they called themselves Nephites. Yeah. And they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, to protect the land, and to laying down of their lives. See, even they covenanted that they would never give up their liberty, but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. You know, it seems to be like that's kind of going on maybe a little bit about what it is. It's like a an identity to defend. And we see that later on, maybe even in that identity, we see later on in Helaman that a lot of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and the people of Ammon actually head north, and they go with that whole migration northward, and they're never really never heard of again. We don't really ever hear from them again, again in the text. And so, yeah, it's this really fascinating idea. So when we start to read about the cursed land and about stoning the prophets, because here in chapter 13... Those are really the the two really big narratives, and then it starts talking about destruction. So yeah, it's, it's hey, listen, you're going to be cursed. The land's going to be cursed. You won't be wealthy. You won't be able to have your money. You will work and do everything you can, but you will never be able to get ahead anymore. Like, like your ability to provide for yourself is gone, and you won't even understand why, basically. And then it talks about prophets, and it's, and it's saying, listen— if a prophet comes and you like what they have to say, man, you'll roll out the red carpet for them and you'll pay them and you'll put them up on a pedestal and you'll listen to them. But if a prophet says something you don't like, well, man, you're going to stone them to death and you're going to, you're going to get rid of them. But then in the day, you're just going to basically lament and mourn in that day when your actions have taken you to a place of consequence that you don't like. And it's going to be such a road that you're not going to feel like you can ever get out of it. <sighs> just, it's hard. Yeah, you know, um, starting in verse 
uh, 32, where it kind of talks about that. This is this is the prophecy, almost word for word, that it, it finds its fulfillment in Mormon chapter 2, right? So we, we see here in verse 32, And in the days of your poverty you shall cry unto the Lord, and in vain shall you cry, for your desolation has already come upon you, and your destruction is made sure. And then shall you weep in hell in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. And then shall ye lament and say, Oh, that I had repented, had not killed the prophets, um, and so forth here. So um, this is an interesting parallel with Mormon chapter 2 because uh, Mormon sees all of his people lamenting and he thinks they're repenting, right? This is his perception that maybe they're repenting. And then he finds out they're not really repenting. They're just upset that they can't, take happiness in sin in their continual uh, murder and and war that they're not finding satisfaction in this and they're just frustrated and so th this is the prophecy of what's going to happen with that that they can't repent at this point because their process of repentance is persisting in the wickedness they're just well, how are we going to fix this? Well, we just need to kill more Lamanites, and then that will fix everything. It's There's no repentance that's actually happening there because they won't turn around and face the other way, and, and they will refuse to do that. And so from that perception, it becomes what we would call everlastingly too late. Now, I'd like to have a discussion about that in verse 38 here in a second, but... Um, you know, I, you said, I want to go back to one thing that you said before. You said maybe the identity of Nephite means defend. And I think that might, you might be onto something there because is that not how Nephi defines himself in, in relation to his people? You know, he gets the sword of Laban, he makes swords after its manner, and then he becomes their protector, as Jacob calls it, right? And so I think, I think that's very interesting that it might be something something a law something like that right something like the the defenders or 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 something um and so then that's what the anti or the not the anti nephi lehi's but the 2000 stripling warriors that's the identity they take upon themselves right of the nephites and but the anti nephi lehi's don't take the identity of the nephites cuz that's that's not their narrative they're the anti nephi lehi's and then when the nephites go to war they move to melik and then when all of this stuff is starting to happen and all the Gadiant robbers are taking over the land, you're right, you know, they move even farther north and we don't we don't hear about them anymore. Yeah. What if what if that whole thing with Nephi and the sword of Laban, what if that was like a curse? That that narrative is really what frames the that Nephi's killing Laban with the sword and taking the sword and then fashioning everything after the sword, all the weapons and the swords thereafter, after that, with all of his metallurgy, because he, you know, I remember watching a documentary about the, about the book of Mormon, about uh, Lehi there in the wilderness, really showing that Nephi was probably uh, the son of a merchant. So Lehi is, a, is probably a, a very wealthy merchant, but you know, if Nephi knows how to write in Egyptian, if they have all of those mm -hmm. possessions, there's a lot of evidence that Lehi's probably some kind of merchant and that he travels a lot. Travel. And yeah. if Nephi is always looking at metals, he's probably being trained in the art of metallurgy. And, you know, he know he sees the iron ore. He knows how to fix the, you know, make tools. the tools. And the, yeah, exactly. 
And all of the mines that are along the trade routes, Nephi probably knows. He's probably been with Lehi and he probably knows these. And so when he gets the sword of Laban and he fashions all the swords, just because of the type of vocation that he has and his day and age and the culture that he lives, he takes that with him. What if that, what if that is, is just the Book of Mormon is like this really big tragedy of a soap opera that begins with this one act of violence that begins a cascading effect of identity all the way down a thousand years. And so even when it's purged by the narrative of Christ, it's readopted back again to the people's destruction. Is that, is that possibly what's going on here? Is that possibly one of the many things that this text is telling us? I, I think it's it's one level that we could look at for, you know, one strain. Um, you know, I, I was listening to the podcast you did with uh, Riley a bit ago, um, and you were talking about, you know, how basically you can come to the scriptures with any question and find the answers to that question. You know, like if we were if we were to come to the scriptures with with seeing that narrative, we could certainly find evidence for that in it. And, and I think it's a valid one and it's one that we could definitely teach us um, a lot about our own identities, you know, and and what it is that we base those those myths on, myths on, and are those um, really founded in a testimony of Christ? You know, back in Helam in chapter five, where that it seems to be the whole sort of roots of of the the power with which Nephi and Lehi preach is that, that verse, you know, 511, right? Where their, their foundations are really firm in the testimony of Christ. And that is why they have the power to preach. And, and so often that foundation seems to be intermingled with all of these other nationalist um, identities and stuff. And, um, and that, that doesn't destroy, but it, detracts right from from the ability of one to really preach with power and true pure testimony of christ um and so yeah you know that that could be something where where we see that 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 identity is is a taint on you know taints sort of that can taint that testimony I don't know if you can clean that up a bit. I stuttered, but <laughs> <laughs> I can clean up everything. Yeah, <laughs> most everything. I don't know. The last one I didn't do so well. So you talked about thirty-eight here, and about this everlastingly yes. too late. You know, so it says, mm-hmm. "But behold, your days of probation are past." Now, I think that's really interesting. Let's come back to that. Okay. So the days of your probation are past. You have procrastinated the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late and your destruction is made sure. Yea, for ye have sought all the days of your lives for that which ye could not obtain, and ye have sought for that happiness in doing iniquity, which is contrary to the nature of that righteousness, of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. All right. Wow. There's a lot there. Kind mm-hmm. of just one run, long run on sentence. So you are past the days of your probation. That's interesting because he's talking to people who are alive. Yeah. And they're past the days of their probation. They've procrastinated the day of their salvation until it is everlastingly too late. 
Well, if it's everlastingly too late, why is Samuel there? <laughs> if they yeah. if they don't have the option, then why why it's what's the point? It's kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses with the hundred forty four thousand people they're going to be saved, and it's like, hey, you've got names slotted for each one of those. So why am I even going to join the church if everybody who's going to be saved is already slotted? There's no real point to it. So if why is if it's everlastingly too late, as it sounds like it sounds. If it is like it sounds, then why would they even... All right, well, if it's everlastingly too late, oh, whatever. Well, again, the context of this is his his prophecy, right? He's prophesying that this will be their state if they persist in the way that they are, right? And 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 that's always the way that it is. Like, if you don't repent today, when are you going to repent? This goes back to our discussion of Alma chapter 34, which is, is basically... Um, this is an allusion to that, in my opinion, because there's not, that's where these words come from. Days of probation, procrastinated. Those are words straight out of Alma chapter 34, where Amulek's talking about repentance, right? And surely, you know, if you don't, if you're not going to repent today, when are you going to repent? That's always the question. Um, and so he's saying, if you persist in this way and and you don't repent, this is where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in a place where it's going to feel impossible. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the, it, it, there's still this question of what does he mean by everlastingly too late? I mean, I wrote in the margin here, I says, well, is it ever too late to repent? Is it really ever too late to repent? Um, it, does, does God's love just say, hey, you know, um, it's midnight. You're a pumpkin. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I don't see it. I don't see how that can be. This got. It's got to mean something different here. Um, there's got to be a context to which this fits. Um, and because because I see this whole it's too late to repent as either um, sort of our own self denigration or. Maybe it doesn't have to be either or, but um, simply the whisperings of Satan telling us there's no reason, you know, you don't need to repent because it's too late. Uh, you you won't be able to repent. It's too hard. Yeah. What is that saying that, that says there's two lies that Satan tries to get us to believe? One is mm-hmm. that it, it doesn't matter. And so once we've sinned, the second lie is, well, that you can never repent for it. Yeah. It, it's not It's not a big deal. And so you sin and then you say, oh, it's such a big deal. You can't repent of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, I think in a lot of ways, this 38, and it goes back to things that you and I have talked about several times before about this difference. Are we going to read this as though this is reality and that God is now deciding when we are everlastingly too late? Or is it us deciding? Is it, is it talking about our experience? You know, so is the uh, the days of our probation past procrastinating the days of our salvation until it is everlastingly too late? Is this when we have kind of crossed our own threshold where we believe like from the, you know, that adversary, that, that Satan voice, because, you know, Satan accuser. is Hebrew yeah. for accuser, accuser, right? Yeah. So this accuser that we keep listening to inside of our head and inside of our soul, that is accusing us of this where we don't believe that we can ever get out of it. And so that's when Satan gets a hold of us. 
That's when Satan has power over us. That's when Satan has bound us down with those chains, when we never believe that we can rise above it, whenever we can rise and reach the lofts of God because of our own sin and our own and our own our own choices have led us down this road. When in reality, like Alma, all we have to do is call upon the name of God. It's just like that look. It's like the serpent all over again. You just look and you're healed. And is, is it ever really too late? Now, in the analogy of the serpent, yeah, it's too late when you die, right? <laughs> um, and that's kind of the finality of that story. But for me, all logic and all consistency with God tells me that this whole process of becoming like God is an eternal journey and it's, it's an ongoing journey. And so just one and done doesn't really seem to fit with me. And, you know, President Nelson talked about it uh, in, I think in, in this last conference or maybe in the previous conference when he just hinted and he was kind of getting down to the whole brother and don't, brothers and sisters don't procrastinate the day of your repentance kind of a talk. And, then he like hints on this phrase, and I'm going to have to look it up, where he says something that closely to the effect of, it hasn't been revealed yet, basically, that whether or not we have eternal progression, you know, throughout kingdoms or what you're beyond kingdoms. He goes, but just don't, let's, let, let's just not try to test that theory yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> almost like I'm really hopeful that that's the case, but just in case it's not, you know, I, I don't know, but just in case it's not, let, and, and so it's like Alma, I mean, like all over again, just like what you said. Don't procrastinate because if not now, when? Just 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 yeah. do it now. And so that's very much the flavor I picked up from President Nelson when he said that. But I also believe that we have I just all logic tells me that that's the case that we do have this eternity, but I also understand how saying that really takes away a bite, you know, the bite that sometimes we need to be able to repent now. And we talked about it before with when we talked about Alma, about sales and about this whole driving up scarcity by creating immediacy. And when it's immediacy, and this is a sales tactic I always use door to door. I'm like, I've got two slots left. I'm going to get them filled up in the next five minutes. I didn't know if I'm going to get them filled up in the next five minutes. I really <laughs> hope I could get them filled up in the next five minutes, right? Because then I can like go on to the next 10. I got two slots left. Well, I, I had 20 slots left, but I got two slots left. I can get it done in the next five minutes. Got to make a decision right now. Well, can I talk to my wife? No, you got to make it right now. <laughs> no, don't talk to your wife. <laughs> don't talk <laughs> Don't talk to your spouse. <laughs> I need to sell one person at a time. And yeah. and so you just drive up that, that, that the now, the choice that needs to be made now creates an immediacy. Because let's face it, humans are lazy creatures. Why do now what we could do tomorrow? And we always get into this mode. Well, Ben, the... For me, I've I've come to this place where I very much I feel it so deeply that we are always already worthy. And it's this phrase that I've kind of adopted as a mantra. And I've gotten some pushback over from it, because there's a few places in the Book of Mormon that <laughs> seem to kind of counteract this phrase. But if but this is kind of a dangerous phrase to state if we're not careful with it, because in our current culture of talking about worthiness or uh, these things, if we are always already worthy, then what need do we have to change? You know, Korhor, it's Korhor, right? And he's, he's like, you don't need to change. 
You know, he, he talks to them about flattery, right? You don't need to change. You're already perfect. In fact, it's just the idea of Christ that makes you think that you're not perfect so that you have to have him to repent and to die for you. And mm-hmm. so it's this whole idea that Korhor almost teaches this, you're perfect, and that's why you don't need Christ. But it's the very fact that I'm always already worthy that I do need Christ. And, and it's the whole beatitude story because I don't perceive that yet. And this is where I, pers- where I really loved what we said about Alma being in Alma 36 when he was in those clutches of hell and that individual hell of it basically of his own making. And it just the idea of Jesus Christ and calling upon Jesus Christ. And once he was brought into God's presence, God's not there saying, okay, well, here's the deal. You have a year. And over the next year, you're going to say your prayers every single day, and you're going to read your scriptures every single day, and you're going to meet with me, meet with me once a week, and we're going to go through this whole process and just kind of see where it goes, okay? There was none of that. It was just an immediate boom, and oh, what joy I felt, and I couldn't remember my pains anymore, so exquisite was my joy surpassed my pain, and it was just coming into the presence of God was the awakening that he was always there in the presence of God already. He just needed to recognize it. And that's what repentance for me is. It's learning to see God differently in ourselves and each other. So, yeah, it's it's this process of coming, coming to the realization of what already is, I think is a better way of being able to say it. Coming to the realization of what always already is. Because when we sin, and I really love how Samuel the Lamanite puts it, because he really reiterates what Alma was saying about wanting what never was. Mm-hmm. He's like, you want what never was. You you want to be happy in your sin. And, you're, and that's just nonsensical. You can never be happy in your sin because if you are spent your life doing iniquity and everything contrary to the nature upon which you are as a human being, you're not going to find happiness that way. I, there was one uh, theologian I heard who put it this way. He said, you know, we're, we're human beings and there are certain conditions for our happiness being human beings. But if we jump out of a 10 story building, pretending to be a bird, don't blame God for the consequence when you hit the ground. You know, when we act beyond our limits of what we are as human beings, pretending to be something we are not, that's what I'm beginning to see sin as behaviors, actions that are rooted in Maybe motivations to find happiness, but finding happiness in all the wrong places that's not requisite with our humanity, that's not consistent with our humanity. Well, and that's interesting because when we talk about the context or the idea of Christ being really, in essence, the only true human who ever lived or the only person who was 100% true to his humanity— right? Then in as much as we emulate Christ, we are approaching that humanity, right? And sin is anything that is short of that, which is all we do, right? Right. (laughs) All we do is fall short of that. And that's why we need him as our exemplar to continually be looking to him as the way, as the way that we really live up to our true potential and our true humanity of who we are, as children of God. You know, all of this discussion about being too late to repent and the, and the love of God, it did, it made me think about uh, Doctrine and Covenants 138, where we have the revelation about what goes on in the spirit world. And, uh, you know, verses 30, 
let's see, 30 through 32 about is, uh, it says, but behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. And the chosen messengers went forth to declare the acceptable day of the Lord and proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound, even unto all who would repent of their sins and receive the gospel. Thus was the gospel preached to those who had died in their sins without a knowledge of the truth or in transgression, having rejected the prophets. Right here, we have an example of how God will constantly or continually or eternally reach for his children in in any way that they will listen to him. And in as much as they do, he's there for them. And I love this revelation not so much for um, knowledge in terms of whether it's uh, exactly accurate about what happens after death as much as it is a an explanation of a a more eternal view of God's love and how he will constantly reach for his children um i liked how when i taught seminary one of the things that we were to use to examine the scriptures always was you know look at concepts and questions with an eternal perspective and always when we come to something like this you know uh sam with lamanites telling them that they need to repent or it will be everlastingly too late um that today is the day of our repentance but god will never stop reaching for you you know if if today's not doesn't end up being the day of your repentance Tomorrow is the day of your repentance. (laughs) (laughs) So, Yeah, also, you know, when we talk about, as I've talked about this whole, you're always already worthy, the scripture in 2 Nephi 28 is usually brought up as well. It's like, all right, well, should we just then like eat, drink, and be merry? And then it's well with us just because we're always already worthy? I'm like, no, that's not really what that scripture is saying because that scripture is saying, hey, look, we're already, you know, we're already righteous. No, that's not what I'm saying by always already being worthy. But in this, they're saying, hey, do whatever you want to do. Justify committing a little sin. You know, take advantage of one because of their words. Dig a pit for their neighbor. There's no harm in this. And do everything because tomorrow we die and it's going to be okay. God's going to be us with a few stripes. We're going to be fine. And that's not what this is meaning at all. This is just talking about a state of being that we are always in the presence of God. You know, I, I think that sometimes subconsciously in our culture, we have this way of looking at God where... Because of the statements like, God can't look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, or that if we go into situations and the spirit leaves, we talk about it as the spirit leaving. Uh And I think because we talk about it in those terms, I think subconsciously we've created a narrative and an understanding and a belief and view about God that he's weaker than sin. That he, you know, it's like a sea, like God's a sea anemone. And whenever you touch it, you know, whenever sin touches God, it like withers away and sucks it, you know, sucks himself back in. He's like, oh, I can't be around sin. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, that's just not who God is. Right. Yeah. And I love 
you know, there's this quote I found, I'm going to paraphrase, I fucking, I post so many quotes, but it's this whole concept that it's the fact it's our weaknesses and our sins where God comes and really attaches himself to us because it's through those weaknesses and the sins that God is truly glorifying himself and truly being glorified because it's, that's where he's really working with us. You know, we tend to think it's our sin that's really casting God out, but that's right where God is at. That's the trench. God's in the trenches with us in our own sin, and he's right there with us. And we think that it's our sin and our unworthiness that casts God out. And, you know, we sin, we make a mistake, we do something bad, whatever it is. And it's like, woohoo, the spirit's gone. You know, it's like God, I, I had so much power in my sin that Satan's presence and evil's presence casts God out. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's just the opposite way around. God is always there. What's lacking is our perception of recognizing that and tapping into it. He's always present there. He's always with us. Because we're always right there in that presence of the light of Christ and everything that God is. Our sin doesn't drive him out. And so in this way... I, you know, that accuser comes and this kind of goes back to, again, what we're talking about with 38, this verse 38 here about this everlastingly too late. You know, we get into this mindset where we believe that we've cast God out, that we've been able to really push him out so much until Satan has such a hold of our heart, that accusing voice in our head. You know, I, I, I truly believe there's a real Lucifer. I believe that he has the title of, of Satan. I believe that he's kind of the, he's like the owner of that whole movement. But I also believe that within ourselves, we have both this Christ, almost like this yin and yang, this Christ figure and the Satan figure within us. And this, this part of our personality, this part of each of us has this voice that tells us either we're not good enough, that we're unworthy, that we're not smart, that, that something is wrong with us. It's the accusing voice of whatever it is in each one of our lives that we feel that accusing, pulling down and not feeling good enough not feeling worthy, not feeling God's presence. And, and somehow that if you don't feel God today, it's because you know, you sinned and and you weren't doing something right. And this is a terribly popular narrative in our church culture. And one that I think really needs to change is that just because you don't feel God right now, it doesn't mean you've necessarily done something wrong. Because some of the most beautiful moments I've had with God is when, when he's not there. When I don't feel like, when I'm just kind of sitting and I feel like nothingness, I've learned to just be in those moments. And I, I, it's not, I, I'm not there all the time. But when I sit there and I can just be there and almost like in just like in like a nothingness meditation in those moments, I've, I've learned to see that God is still there. And just because I don't perceive anything from it, um, those have been really powerful moments. And so when that accusing voice comes that tells us that it's too late, that it's too much, that's the voice that we're like, no, you need to go back to hell where you belong. (laughs) That's the Brigham Young one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he says. When you have a, what does he say? When you have a bad thought about yourself, just tell it to go back to hell where it came from. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I think the way that I might put it is something like, you know, you are always worthy of the love of God. There's nothing you can do to 
make yourself unworthy to feel the love of God. Um, and then after you have felt that and you have decided to repent and turn yourself to him, then you can express that love that you have felt outwardly as righteousness. Um, and But righteousness isn't what makes you worthy of the love of God. It's what you do after you have felt it in terms of bearing testimony or witness of that. But you're always worthy to receive it if you just will. So that was the first chapter. <laughs> I know we've talked about some of these others already. Um, I don't know. What you, do you have some other, other thoughts here in chapter 14? Some of the things, you know, we talked about how uh, he says, because I'm a Lamanite. Oh, there, you know, there's a phrase that he's constantly repeating here. And even after he's done in chapter 16, it talks about it. He says, to the intent that ye might believe or to the intent and, and he's always using that phrase, to the intent. And I, I felt like that was a maybe a reformulation of the doctrine of perhaps. And I, re I really liked it, how how all of these things, you know, the, this was being done. I did this to the intent or, you know, with the idea in mind that this would happen, that perhaps, right? Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I like that, that phrase constantly throughout here, to the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved. Um, so he's constantly talking about that. Yeah. When 14, we have, you know, the signs of Christ's birth and, and, and I love that we have the signs of Christ's birth. We also have the signs of his death. This becomes very, a very popular thing. Of course, we know that they're going to downplay both of them. Uh, the Nephites are going to downplay both signs. Um, mm -hmm. the first sign they're going to downplay a little bit better than the second sign. Because when the second sign comes, you can't really downplay that one. Um, cities end up in the middle of the ocean. So, and, and on fire and all sorts of crazy things. So with the signs of Christ's birth, I, I think it's really fascinating to see how the people responded to it and how they were prophesied that they were going to be able to respond to it as though, you know, it was just this magical moment that the people that they were going to, I'll just read it. It's in Helaman 16. And it said, and the, and the people began to be, and the people began to reason to contend among themselves saying, it's not reasonable that such a being as Christ shall come. And if so, and if he be the son of God, the father of heaven and earth, as it has been spoken of, why will he not show himself unto us as well as unto them who would be at Jerusalem? Yea, why will he not show himself in this land as well as in the land of Jerusalem? Well, this is a bit of a straw man. Uh, because they mm -hmm. prophesy that he is going to come visit. You know, it has been spoken that he, he is going to come visit them. But it says, But behold, we know that this is a wicked tradition which has been handed down to us by our fathers to cause us that we should believe in some great and marvelous thing which should come to pass, but not among us, but in a land which is far distant, a land which we know not. Therefore, they can keep us in ignorance, for we cannot witness with our own eyes that they are true. And they will, by the cunning of the mysterious arts of the evil one, work some great mystery, which we can't understand, which will keep us down to be servants to their words and also servants unto them, for we depend upon them to teach us the word. And thus will they keep us in ignorance, and we will yield ourselves unto them all the days of our lives. 
You know, this is not, I mean, there's so many things wrong with this statement. I mean, I get it. I get what they're coming to. I get what they're trying to get at with this fear of being manipulated, this fear of being taken advantage from, of, this fear that someone else is going to control a narrative over him. But the fact is, is that Alma's already told him, hey, listen, if you just have the the desire to believe, just let that grow. And just just have just experiment on the word. You don't have to yeah. take the prophet's word for it. You don't have to take the priest's word for it. You're not dependent upon them to teach you the word. You're dependent upon God to teach you the word. And so, yeah, this this whole line of argument is just a straw man. It's just a logical fallacy. Well, and it's it's still persistent today. I mean, we see stuff like this in terms of um, those who who would attack the the very idea of religion, not just organized religion. You know, there's there's a myriad of of arguments and discussions about that that we're going to get into, but. But this type of thing, you know, how how if someone is teaching religion, that it must be a form of trying to usurp power over another person. And um, it's just, it's certainly that happens. But in so many cases, it's just so obviously not true that that someone is simply trying to share how they're experiencing God with another person. And when the other person asks, how do you do it? You know, then they try to sort of explain it. And then inevitably it turns into sort of this like, um, procedure, right? (laughs) And so it's not that that's the intention. The intention is simply to, to witness and bear testimony of, of the truth. So another person can also have the experience, but, uh, you know, it can turn into something procedural, so to speak, and, and that does not imply that someone is trying to usurp, usurp power and authority or, or control someone else. Um, and so I would just say in the majority of cases, it's just simply not true. Although, obviously, it, it has happened before and it does happen. Um, the phrase that I think is so fascinating here is just at the very beginning of verse 18. And I think it this tells the most about the attitude of the people that that were saying this and they say it is not reasonable that such a being as Christ shall come. Oh, there's so much there, right? Yeah. Not reasonable. Yeah. You know what? You're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, it's the most reasonable thing there is because how else can we as humans know how, learn how to be human in the way that we should be without a perfect exemplar, a.k.a. a son of God that perfectly exemplifies, again, who it is to be and what it is to be human that we should or that we could be if we so choose to be. And then to say such a being as, yeah, you know, the, the implication here that, that there would be somebody that is so perfectly, um, loving. And, and what is, what does he say? You know, what does Samuel the Lamanite say earlier about Christ? It says, who surely shall come into the world and shall suffer many things 
and shall be slain for his people. It's not reasonable that such a person would exist, right? Who would come and do that? That makes no sense. Um, And yet that's exactly the most reasonable thing that could happen and, and absolutely has to, as the prophets explain over and over again, how necessary it is that Christ should come. In verse 15, and this is kind of going back one chapter, I think it's rather interesting because this is after what we'd already talked about with the Nephites are loved and the Lamanites are hated. But the Lamanites now are experiencing their own flip. And it's one of the predominant times and one of the main times that this happens where the Lamanites are now, the majority of the Lamanites are righteous and now the Nephites are wicked. This really hasn't happened before like this. But Samuel the Lamanite is talking about how this has happened. And he says in verse 9, I thought this was kind of interesting because it's very reminiscent of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's with one really distinct difference, I noticed. But it says in 15.9, And you know also that they have buried their weapons of war, and they fear to take them up, lest by any means they should sin. Yea, You can see that they fear to sin, for behold, they will suffer themselves that they be trodden down and slain by their enemies, and they will not lift up their swords against them, and this because of their faith in Christ. Right? This is fascinating. Now, one of the things that distinguished the early, you know, the first anti-Nephi-Lehi's was their fear to sin, yes, but it was the fear to sin because of their love for their brethren. And is that, and maybe that's the same case for these guys too. But this one is really identifying down on the narrative to suffer themselves to be trodden down because of their faith in Christ and because of their fear of sin. So it's a different motivation here than in before. Because in Alma 26, we have Ammon who is talking about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's where he says, And they had rather sacrifice their lives than even to take the life of their enemy. And they have buried their weapons of war deep in the earth because of their love towards their brethren. And now behold, I say unto you, has there been so great love in all the land? Behold, I say unto you, nay, not even among the Nephites. For they would have taken up their arms against their brethren, and they would not suffer themselves to be slain. And then it comes down and says, Behold, how many of these have laid down their lives? And we know that they have gone to their God because of their love and of their hatred to sin. So here we have like this hatred to sin. And maybe I'm thinking that maybe hatred and fear are being used rather synonymously. I want to, I want Mm -hmm. to think that those two are used synonymously because we're not, uh, you know, we don't have the original text, obviously. So this love, uh, love of the other and the hatred to sin, which uh, just doesn't come up right here in, in this chapter, but maybe, I I don't know how you'd be able to (laughs) lay down your life for the other person just with faith in Christ without having love for the other. But it says, and now because of their steadfastness, when they do believe in that thing, which they do believe for because of their firmness, which they are once enlightened. And now because of their steadfastness, when they do believe in that thing, which they do believe for because of their firmness, when they are once enlightened, behold, the Lord shall bless them and prolong their days, notwithstanding their iniquity. Yea, and even if they should dwindle in unbelief, the Lord shall prolong their days until the time that they shall come when they have spoken of by our fathers and also by the prophet Zanus and many other prophets concerning the restoration of the brethren, the Lamanites, again to the knowledge of the truth. 
So it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. The, the Lamanites consistently are more righteous in this manner than the Nephites, that when they are converted, they're deeply converted. And we see, we see that again. We see that when they're truly converted of that, of that thing in which they do believe in the thing in which they do believe. <laughs> it's, one of, yeah. it's one of my new favorite verses there and how that phrases that. But yeah, it's, the Lamanites really are an amazing people. It's abs- they're just, they always fascinate me. And I really wish, and I really hope rather, that one day we will get their record, that we'll be able to read their record to know what their side of the story was. Almost like a, you know, the, the opposite side of the Book of Mormon from the, from the Lamanite narrative all the way down. I would love, I would love to read that record. Did you ever read as a kid the, uh, the, the story of the three little pigs is told by the wolf? Do you remember that book? <laughs> <laughs> I think I vaguely remember. It was so I, good. I, I don't remember. But it, you know, it's kind of like that. You know, he he tells this he tells the story in a totally different way. You'll have to go look it up. But that's what made me think of when you say, you know, I wonder if we could get the the Lamanite side of this story. But uh, you know, back to your point of, hey, why when the Lamanites are converted, are they so much more firm and steadfast, and they they just have a different um, way of experiencing and living the gospel in general? than the Nephites do in general, right? And and there seems to be, what might be the difference here is some cultural differences um, that that sort of underlie their narrative that they then bring to their faith. And it's kind of what we were talking about before with how maybe this Nephite cultural sort of Achilles heel or thorn in their side has always been a detractor from their faith, something that that so often will sort of hobble them in in their ability to express their faith as fully as a Lamanite who is is converted. And obviously, it's not true for all the Nephites, and obviously, it's not true for all the Lamanites. But there's like this general cultural difference between them that that might that they then bring to their their faith that that will explain this difference in in the trend um you know you were talking about how verse nine there seems to be a little different uh discussion here about the motivations of them laying down their weapons and and not taking them up against their enemies uh in alma it being um explicitly because of the love of their brethren and here only mentioning the faith in christ um yeah i don't think we can solidly say that there is you know that that it wasn't one or the other, but if it, if it is a difference, you know, um, I kind of go back to my, my continuum of, of, uh, willingness to commit violence, right. And Christ being, um, on one side and, and basically like, I don't know, uh, Genghis Khan aggressive warfare on the other side, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I don't know what you would say, but, um, but the, the love of your uh, brethren, you know, being that, that pure, christ-like motivation but that um even just one step from that is the fact that they they do believe in christ and they do believe it's right and they want to follow him and do what he did but they just don't quite love their brethren all that much (laughs) (laughs) and and i can identify with that okay You know, I can I can identify with that. So so even if that's the case with these Lamanites, I get it, right? You know, like 
these knot-headed Nephites or or the Gadianton robbers, for goodness sake. I mean, these people are are horrible. Um, they they're the worst people that have existed in the land. They just do awful, awful things, you know. And so obviously, it's very very difficult to love them. But um, at least from from like a a faith perspective, they can say we we have faith in Christ, and this is the way we're going to follow, even if we fail to love our brethren in in every single minute and moment of every day. You know, <laughs> finally, some people who are bearing their weapons of war that I can identify <laughs> with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. Well, Ben, this has given me a lot of stuff to think about. You know, talking about it for the last hour and a half, I, I have almost more questions now that I, I had answers than I thought I had maybe some things pinned down, but it's, it's, it's really rich. a great discussion. Yeah. Is there anything else that you had that uh, you wanted to talk about? You know, a lot of other things marked up, but I, I feel like, um, I do feel like I've said what I uh, wanted to say about it or, or needed to be said at least this time. Cool. All right. Well, next week we are going to be going. We're into Third Nephi. I'm so super excited to get into the. Yeah, we're only a couple of weeks away from from Christ. I know it's so exciting. I man, I'm I'm getting ready for that. So uh, super happy. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and uh, leave us comments uh, if if you find it val- valuable and you liked it, share it and let everybody else know about it. But until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan, and I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you so much for listening.